Good morning, good morning. You have made it a Sunday morning and you're listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. If you haven't joined us before on this show, then welcome. It is lovely to have you with us. You've joined a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people. People in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences their decision-making and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. Now, by discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and found programs that found more sustainable, loving and heartfelt ways to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. The show today is so pertinent And that, in fact, wasn't necessarily planned because it was recorded quite a while ago. Well before the chaos ensued at the ABC at board level and there were situations of overstepping responsibility and accusations of political interference from the board level. At the time of this interview, the Banking Royal Commission was coming to a point where it was clear there had been a gross abuse of corporate responsibility and questionable ethics and profits over people. And that really was the foundation of the interview that, that I did because my guest um, has has really had a background in that financial side of boards. So, But how did we get to this place where we've got a situation like the ABC board where the the management of the board know where the governance of the board has infiltrated and influenced or attempted to influence the government of the operation side is it just a one-off is it just a couple of bad apples or misdirected decisions but there seems to me there's a deeper problem to be addressed and it relates to valuing our voices and seeing ourselves as equal members of society because there are a number of people on a board A board is made up of a chair, a company secretary, a number of executives or non-executive directors, and the ideal number is between seven and nine, depending on the size and complexity of the organisation, and it is vital to have diversity. Now, specialist skills are helpful, but diversity of the views of the world are imperative. Therefore, age, ethnicity, gender should all be considered as positives when selecting board members, not a negative, which I think way too often it is. You're either too young or too too old. You know, you you have a different ethnicity or you're female and rather than male. Now, you know, half the world is female, but only 9% of board members are female. And that's mirrored in just so many different places in our society. Why do we view age in the same way? Why do we say that, you know, young people don't have anything to bring to um, the world and to leadership? Leadership is a quality that comes from within, from seeing a need and a call and responding to it. And inspiring leaders have a natural ability to encourage all others to be leaders as well, to take responsibility for their behavior, their actions and their work so that actually everybody on a board 
just is inspired to be on that board. And then the people that work in that organization equally are inspired to take responsibility for their work ethic and, and their, what they produce. And the company thrives. I don't believe that leadership is attached to race, age or gender. And, and it's more the ability to lead by example and by physical example, not just by good and manipulative words. Because I think some leaders are fantastic at marketing and marketing themselves. And that's really, that's not how, um, that's not inspiring leadership. That's, well, that's just what someone does as opposed to what inspires another to, to follow in their example. Do you remember the expression, out of the mouths of babes? I, I love that. And I think it really goes to the root of the age question. Children aren't constrained by must-dos and should-dos. They're closer to that part of their lives where they just ask questions and they very often ask the obvious and state things simply as they are, whereas we'll go for politeness and, oh, you know, you can't say that or you shouldn't say that. Now it seems that this behaviour of questioning and speaking very directly is more associated with an intellectual disability than someone who has an innate, an innate connection to truth and actually can't hold back and, and speaks up, which suggests that we're more at ease with keeping up appearances and, and keeping the peace rather than honesty and truth, which might require change. And perhaps that's why we're where we are. Now, as I said before, this interview was recorded before this topic became the maelstrom that it now is. Um, but I love uh, my guest, Teresa Dyson, a, a, a woman who trained as a lawyer and through a, a varied and diverse series of events now holds a place on a number of boards. But she shows the personal side of being on the board and the potential to offer back to our community and to the world. In this interview, Teresa shares with us how so many of the seemingly accidental or innocuous decisions she made early on in her life have all supported her to be the woman she is today. I started by asking Teresa what she learnt at school and if anything that she learnt at school has had any significance in the business world that she now lives and works in. When I was at school and trying to think about subjects that I would choose, um, I've got to admit, I didn't have a clear vision about what it was that I wanted to do in terms of either study after school or ultimate career. I chopped and changed in my thinking quite a lot. At one stage, I was keen on the idea of optometry for quite a long time. I was very enthralled with, um, with aeronautical engineering as a career idea, although at that time, um, that was kiboshed by the school counsellor at my all-girls school in Brisbane um, and uh, so that was very discouraging uh, for me. So the idea of doing law, which is what I did end up studying, um, didn't really come to me until really after I'd left school and in fact had started university. So at school I wanted to choose the broadest level of subjects that were as challenging as I thought I could be challenged in terms of school and to give me the best and broadest range of options when I finished school. So I um, I took a, a sort of fairly traditional, I suppose, math-science combination and, again, not knowing if I wanted to do something in the sciences or something in you know, the art sort of side of things. 
uh, religion and English were compulsory at the school that I was at, so I already knew that I had English, and then I chose maths one and, and then the maths one and two, which were the two higher level math subjects and chemistry and physics, um, and then I took German as my fifth elective, of course. I was strongly interested in languages still at that stage, so my subject choice was really not about a particular job or um, or even course of study. It was really about keeping every option open and that choice of subjects at that time in Brisbane essentially meant that I could choose from any course and I wouldn't have been um, eliminated from some of the real you know, medical or science-based ones um, and similarly I had the English so I could, um, I could take a a track in um, the humanities side of things as well. I had an aptitude to certainly the math side of things. I had to work a lot harder in the science subjects and I also had an aptitude in the English side of things. So when I left school and I still wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, I did have an advantage of being very young for my year. So I only turned 17 in a matter of weeks before university started, so I had a long time, I thought, to make up my mind. So I took an arts degree straight from uni and did majors in pure maths and English lit, so that sort of kept, again, all of my sides of my brain working and did bits and pieces of psychology and um, German and other bits and pieces on the side just to sort of keep it interesting. Um, in terms of whether I've used those that combination of subjects, certainly on the math and English side I have. Again, probably not so much the science and that doesn't surprise me looking back because they, as I said, they were the ones I was least, um, I had less of an aptitude for, less natural sort of ability in and um, I didn't end up pursuing anything on the sciences. But for the English side of things, you know, certainly in legal career and, and uh, through a lot of um, the extra sort of things that I've done that enhance my legal career, English is a must. Um, and for me, having an ability in, in maths as well sort of meant that I was able to you know, take, I did a Master of Applied Finance after my undergraduate degrees and uh, I'm able to take a really sort of financial and clinical look at things um, from the purely numeric side as well as teaming it with the English. So certainly the maths and the English have carried right through right from since I was at school. Oh, that's going to be music to many students' ears <laughs> to know that they're not wasting their time at school. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think like everyone, when you look back at school and even at university studies, there's... There's not a lot you can pinpoint exactly that you use day to day or um, the, the precise uh, things that you've learned, but it's the type of learning and the way in which you adjust your mind to learn different sorts of concepts and then to extrapolate them into more practical sort of situations. I think that's where the underpinning of learning at, particularly at school, helps. Um, I don't think there's a lot of use of looking at straight algebra and saying, well, when will I use that day to day? You know, the answer is probably not much. <laughs> but mm. the the tools that you gain from understanding those sorts of 
complex um, ways in which numbers work or, you know, again, in English literature, you know, you, you're not going to quote Shakespeare every day, but just understanding the construct of the way in which, you know, beautiful writers construct sentences or have their thoughts come down into paper or into oral communication, I think they're the things that you get out of um, those things at school that you might sit in the classroom and, and wonder whenever that would be relevant. Mm. When you um, start, first started doing law, you um, did you actually go to practice law after completing your law degree? Yes, I did. So I um, completed my law degree and then in Queensland at the time um, there was an article of clerkship sort of program that you needed to to go and actually find a job to be able to qualify as a solicitor. So I worked um, with a, a, small, a small commercial firm in Brisbane at the time uh, for two years doing that and then for another year as well. Amazing. And then after that I... Then I moved to Sydney and um, and started, I suppose, a fairly long career at the firm that at the time was called Blake Dawson Waldron and has morphed into Ashurst now. And what were the um, highlights and lowlights of being an articles clerk? Yeah, so <laughs> the pay was certainly a lowlight. I, um, yeah. I, I was no stranger to working. I've been working since... Um, a week after my 15th birthday in one job or another and certainly through uni I, um, I sort of had a, probably about four different jobs that I used to combine at the time so I think I actually went down in my take-home salary when I oh, started no. <laughs> a bit of a disappointment but uh, we all knew that that was the fate of an article clerk so um I remember on the the first day that I turned up, and um, and I, I don't know if this is the, the equivalent of the um, the tradie being sent for the checkerboard paint, but I was sent up to uh, the federal court to appear and make a, to seek leave to appear to make mention of the fact that uh, a client we were working for was not contesting something, and uh, so it was a very administrative thing to do, and. I remember running up because I was already late and um, wondering to myself how I could possibly do this and convince myself, well, if I wasn't here, somebody else would be doing it, so it just has to be done. Ran up, got there right on time. I need to discover I was at the Supreme Court building, which as an undergraduate was the only one I knew of. I never even knew there was a different complex for the federal court. So by the time I got around there, it was well past and the matter had, had long since been dealt with on an administrative basis and uh, I very clumsily sought leave to appear because uh, as an article clerk, I was not yet a solicitor, so didn't have an automatic right to appear and uh, I uh, caught fairly shift, uh, shifter from the judge on the day and remember walking back pretty uh, disheartened oh, and no. wondering whether, <laughs> whether it was all for me or not. But um, but I sort of, you know, stuck with it, uh, walked back and a very quick account of, of my terrible morning and, <laughs> and oh. moved on to something that, that probably worked a whole lot better. I can't exactly remember the thing that took me through the rest of the day, but uh, it, it must have... It must have worked all right because I turned up on day two. Well, that's the important bit. As you say, you turned up on day two. You didn't just give up. But, yes, those moments 
they they clearly stay with you. Yes, absolutely. And, and, now, and sadly, I think for many of us, the the difficult moments or the moments where we didn't perform to our best are the ones that we seem to retain with much more clarity than the times that you know we really nailed it and you know that uh, that we really did a great job. How were you treated back then? Was it something? Was it a very male-dominated environment, or were there plenty of women who were starting to to go into the profession? Uh, so at that time, I was the only professional woman in the, you know, the sort of mid-sized firm that I was at. There were quite a lot of um, female support staff, and as I said, I I was not new to a working environment. I'd worked in offices in a physio and in bars um, for all of my university career. So the idea of working and working with different and, and potentially difficult people was not threatening to me. But it was a different environment and one that I thought you know, would be the, the typical sort of environment for going forward. Um, so certainly the men, the professional men in the office had a fairly conservative and traditional view of you know how things were done and um, and who would do them there was though always an acknowledgement that two of the very senior secretaries were really the people who ran the show so um, that dynamic between the the non-professional but very in control females in the office versus you know the the professional staff, but who were the the males, but who always sort of bowed to the experience uh, of the um, the secretaries. It was uh, quite an interesting sort of dynamic. Um, I did certainly have to be quite forceful in making sure that you know I wasn't relegated to the more simple sort of jobs that came in, and and being a, a sort of not one of the larger firms that was around at the time. This was sort of uh, early mid eighty or early eighties, um, it, it meant that I was able to be exposed to a cross section of of types of work. So I wasn't really pigeonholed, and because I was very keen, um, and I think that's probably been a hallmark of certainly my professional career through law. Um, always sort of putting my hand up and being a bit nose out of joint when somebody else was was. You know, asked to work on a really juicy, interesting matter, and, and I wasn't, and wondering how I change that for next time. Um, I think that was was held me in great stead, and you know, just being really diligent and, and working hard. Um, the old adage of, of you know, sort of working doubly as hard, probably not quite to that extent, but certainly knowing that you needed to prove that you were worth being there and worth getting the next sort of extension of the, the next sort of harder thing or the next most interesting matter. Today's show is an up-close-and-personal show with Teresa Dyson. Teresa started her work life in law. Her path has not was not necessarily a natural choice from school, which will be music to the ears of many young people starting their HSC in a few weeks and really having no clue what they want to do. But what happens when you finally make a decision about what you're going to study and then qualify? Do you work and, and do you have to work on projects that have ethical challenges? Uh, how do you choose what you're going to do? 
you, I mean, I'm presuming you had to work on cases where you didn't agree or you felt it had gone the wrong way. How did you handle that? Um, I didn't actually have to deal with that a lot. Um, particularly when I moved to Sydney, um, all of my career was in, uh, in, I suppose, financial sort of services structuring, infrastructure, um, it was very exciting to be able to put deals together that meant that, you know, the Eastern distributor would get built or, um, you know, very, you know, groundbreaking public, uh, infrastructure, but also really interesting deals, financing aircraft and things like that. Um, I don't have a point in time, so I never, I didn't really do litigation per se, uh, only a peripherally and, I'd never really did uh, much law that was directly personal, so family or, or, those, or criminal, those sorts of things. So I don't have the experience of working on those sort of truly um, you know, person-to-person type matters that, that can give rise to those conflicts. For me, luckily, uh, and I suppose quite deliberately, I chose a path that... Um, stuck more to the commercial and to asset building and um, and uh, sort of community enhancing sort of matters. So there weren't too many times that there was ever for me a real conflict in the way that that those deals were put together. Um, I suppose the closest it came, I I set up. Um, what, what I now know to be the first of its kind, a legal clinic in a, um, a women and women in crisis drop-in centre in King's Cross in the 90s, and um, which is still going, which uh, which is something that I'm, I'm quite proud of. Um, and I was quite lucky to have the support of a completely commercial firm to spend time to go out and you know, set up a clinic that. You know, we used to drag out massive, big old computers and try and dial into ancient old telephone lines and um, for a couple of hours on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, I mean, in that environment, I did see a whole lot of other sorts of cases. And again, the service that we're providing made me quite comfortable that I was, I was always seeing what I saw, the, the side that ought to be supported, although, you know, there's, there was always grey areas um, in many yeah. of the cases, so um, it, it was that was always, I suppose, again, an easier sort of way for me to yep. uh, put myself in a situation where I knew that, um, on balance, I was doing I was doing good and, and helping people who otherwise were were struggling with, and in some cases, very you know just very ordinary sort of issues, you know, cancelling gym memberships that would cost them a fortune or little things right up to, um, you know, sort of much more detailed uh, on criminal and, and um, estate sort of issues. But again, it was an environment that that you could be quite comfortable that you were genuinely providing some help. Yeah. And so all of this actually, it makes total sense that you were so interested in boards because, again, it's about strategic thinking and big-picture stuff. So it makes complete sense that you um, decided to, to look at going on more boards in a professional capacity. Um, 
It does looking back on it, but in reality, it came as a surprise to me. So it wasn't something that I sought out. Um, I my first board appointment was a Queensland government appointment to um, a water utility, and it came from a call completely out of the blue one Wednesday afternoon. I was on my way to a client function and. The board of uh, the chairman, rather of this board, gave me a call and asked if I'd be interested. And I didn't know anything about either him or the organisation or really being on a board. It um, it was not something that I ever had before that point turned my mind to or certainly actively pursued. And um, I mean, now I, I look back and you know I can sort of plot a lot of the, the sort of board positions that I've got, and I know, but that one still. Um, baffles me a bit as to <laughs> where the um, the approach really came from. So, um, but thankfully it did because I went had to go through a lot of hoops at um, through the law firm because you know they need to understand what it might mean in terms of conflicts and matters for other clients in terms of your time. There's a whole lot of issues to work through, but uh, thankfully. I persisted with it and um, got the tick to go ahead and just really enjoyed being on that side of, of the business. Um, so my legal career was all about you know, providing advice on specific transactions or specific structures, um, you know, pieces of a business, understanding a bit about how they fit into the whole but not really how they were going to drive forward a, a strategy and um, being on this board sort of gave me a whole different perspective on, you know, how um, businesses, you know, be they government or private or not-for-profit, uh, really operate and, and what the sort of completely different level of thinking goes into that. And um, and I'm so, I still remain grateful for that, you know, very random opportunity because it did certainly make me then very interested to start pursuing that as um, as the next sort of phase of my career. And what was your second board where you might have been a bit more purposeful? <laughs> um, so my second board officially was the Board of Taxation and that uh, is a little bit different in that it was, um, it was again, a, a government board at this time, a federal board uh, that essentially advised the Treasurer on implementation and um, pursuit of different sort of taxation options and how... The community sort of viewed it, so it was a little bit of that board was a bit of a hybrid between some of the industry sort of work that I was doing with the law council at the time, um, and a board, and, and ultimately I ended up chairing that board, and again got a real uh, taste for for chairing the board and being able to set a direction um, of a company. But after that, uh, the more operational sort of or, or business sort of type boards that. Um, I took on take quite a, a broad sort of range. So they range through electricity, um, hospital, the media, um, uh, investment. Uh, so a lot of different sorts of sorts of industries and sectors that, uh, again, I, I sort of find really interesting. And um, I find jumping from one to the other quite quite thrilling, really, uh, in terms of. <laughs> Getting across, you know, what's happening in um, Seven West Media, for example, one of my boards, or then, you know, the next day looking at, you know, electricity regulation for the Northern Territory for Power and Water Corporation. You know, the, there's a, a diversity that um, 
that again appeals, I think, perhaps to my personal nature, but certainly I think to anyone who enjoys doing a suite of different sorts of things um, and being across different sorts of issues. Yeah, it just sounds like it's uh, you can apply the same skills but just learn something at the same time as offering your skills. Absolutely. I, I feel as though I learn something, if not every day, most days, um, be it at something technical, so one of the industries that I'm in or in relation to a, a you know, really specific sort of transaction or even just in the way that you deal with different sorts of people. Um, I mean, there's just a, being on a board involves such a different uh, lot of of skills but also challenges and opportunities so you know certainly you've got the, the technical stuff and you've got the governance stuff and you know you need to sort of be across the industry that the board is operating in and you know the internal issues or transactions that might be of relevance at the time but then you know there's the cultural piece as well and just generally board dynamics around a table and how you know each of these different groups of people and they are all very different um, operate and interact and how each group manages to come to a decision and you know determine that that's the right decision for that board at that particular time it's um i mean it, it, as an anthropological study i think that they're all quite interesting as well but uh but everyone's there to get on with it and, and make some decisions about business there in that time so uh that's it's it's fascinating Teresa started her life working in law her path was not a natural choice from school, but you know what? That led to being on a variety of boards in a variety of areas. And what Teresa has shared so clearly is how we never stop learning, whether it be about relationships, about logistics or dynamics. And we left Teresa talking about the anthropological studies that can come from participating in boards but what does being on a board look, sound and feel like? And what happens when something goes wrong? Is it all about the chair? The chair is the first among equals and has the casting vote in a tie. But the role has assumed a greater significance over time. And that, um, But it, really, they're no more significant than any other board member. The role, in truth, of a chairman is to get the best out of the other board members and not to impose themselves on other, other board members. So let's get back to our anthropological studies with Teresa Dyson. I particularly love anthropological studies and <laughs> I, I often look at Parliament and wonder how on earth yes. we ever make any decision and what an appalling board they'd make. Well, so, it's, it's true, but you. Um, but when, as you say, you're you're put into these situations with different people, but you have a common purpose, and you actually have to come to a an agreement on the whole, don't you? What What are the what? I mean, having not been on a board the, the same level as you have, is the does it have to be a hundred percent in agreement? Do you have? Um, are you able to um, negotiate? What does it look like? Um, so it's ideal that there is 100% agreement, there's no doubt about that and certainly once a decision is made, be it a majority decision or a unanimous decision, um, externally it is the decision of the board so uh, it's completely inappropriate for any board member regardless of, of where they stood in that decision to externally um, 
criticise that decision, essentially, because that is ultimately it is a decision of the whole, notwithstanding it may not be unanimous. Um, it's quite... I, find, I do find it quite interesting, and again, because particularly now there's a big focus on schools sets and making sure that you get different sort of board members with all different types of backgrounds. Clearly there's a diversity in terms of gender and um, other attributes uh, around board tables but also in relation to skills, um, particularly around, you know, be they finance or legal or engineering if it's relevant or digital. Um, when you look at the, the deliberate attempt to bring together a group of people who are not the same, then you would expect that decision making would not be easy. So I think the, you know, the, the bad old days or good old days, depending on who you are, of homogenous boards where everybody knew each other from, if not the same school, with similar backgrounds um, and had very similar sort of pathways through to a board table, you, it's not surprising that board decisions are made unanimously very quickly, whereas in the current age, um, I think that's probably not always the case. I think decisions are much more and much more rightly uh, challenged and, you know, different people will ask different sorts of questions about, you know, the you know, the philosophy behind going into a particular deal, let's say, or, you know, the implementation or, you know, there'll be particular people interested in the cost side or other people who are interested in its impact on the culture or the, the human sort of side of the organisation. Other people who are only interested in what does it look like in 10 years' time and some interested in what does it look like for the share price tomorrow. You know, it's um, a much more diverse sort of group, but it's quite astounding in the experience that I've had uh, how few times you don't have a unanimous decision at the end of a discussion. So... Um, and it may be that the people are not as keen on it to start with as others, but uh, or, or that everybody comes up with a decision not to proceed with something. So that's mm. a, an equally valid decision as well. But um, but I can only think of one or two occasions where unanimous decisions have not ultimately been made on you know, important issues for all of the boards that I sit on. And again, with the very you know, diverse sort of group of people that sit around those tables. I think it's, I think it is because people bring into the deliberations um, the ultimate goal of what's best for the business. Everyone sees that from a different prism and or through a different prism and with different sort of focus points and maybe, you know, compromises or changes are made to a particular way in which something might progress to meet some of those things, again, that are identified from someone coming at it from left field, but um, but ultimately decisions are made and are supported by all of the board. I love that approach because, as you say, your every every person there is representing a, a particular facet of humanity, a particular aspect that needs to be considered in a decision about the whole. So, the person who's thinking, you know, uh, ten months ahead is is smart to think 10 months ahead and same with five years ahead or the person mm. who's thinking about it tomorrow so there's those short medium and long-term views but also the people person who says okay well is it people over profits or is it profits over people and and just throws 
throws the question in there to make sure that it keeps everybody accountable for what the ethos perhaps is of the company, which can get lost sometimes, can't it, in those grand discussions? Oh, look, absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think that that level of challenge and rigor makes better decisions and ultimately better businesses because, you know, all of those different um, dimensions are being considered when the decision is being made, not just a lineal sort of decision that might be the case if you did have a lot of people who all look the same in the room and, you know, not not from an invalid or a wrong perspective, but just don't have the frame to bring those different sorts of questions to. So, again, all of those perspectives are completely valid perspectives and it's when you pull them all together and understand that that creates the whole at the end, then that's that's where better decisions uh, and, as I said, better businesses uh, are able to come out the other side. So for people who don't necessarily, again, know the ins and outs of a board, how does it happen that when something goes terribly wrong um, and, and all of a sudden people are baying for the blood of a member of a board or, or a board, how is it that some people resign and some people don't? Yeah, um, I think the, the point of resignation is a different trigger point probably for everyone. So I think when something, when something just goes wrong, be it a terrible you know, accident or, or, or a transaction goes terribly wrong or there's a misjudgment of um, human interaction or whatever it is, um, again, in, in the boards that I'm involved with, all of the board will be notified you know, pretty much immediately um, by way of nowadays, by way of an email and say, look, you know, this is the heads up, this is what's happening, this is who's involved, this is how we're planning to deal with it. So um, I think board members sort of can expect to understand those sorts of um, challenging situations fairly quickly and then very quickly move to to discussion, um, be it on teleconference or in personal meeting, um, to deal with it as, as quickly as, as they can. And I mean, the same is true of um, corporate transactions, you know, hostile takeover, same sort of thing. But, um, you know, they all sort of have those sort of impacts. But in terms of then how individuals deal with, I suppose, the fallout of, um, of you know, what the the issue might be and then the company's response. I think it's those two things together that ultimately lead to um, to decisions about, you know, place on the board. And so it's, I think it's rarely just an incident of itself. I think that you need to look at it in combination with the, with the company response and that is the response essentially of the board, the chairman, the CEO and the, the senior management. Um, different people have... Again, not in not in any sense invalidly different reasons for um, either staying with a board to help see it through to steady the course. Uh, other people, you know, have have a threshold of a particular type of maybe behaviour or a, a particular result or something that that they might just say is is intolerable for them to to be able to continue. Um, either for their personal reputation or just for their ability to, to continue to contribute in a positive way to the working of that board. So, um, you know, I think it's it's a 
tricky one and it's one that uh, comes down to just the way in which people view particular circumstances and then their ability to to continue on in that environment. Mm, fascinating. Because um, it just looks quite scary and quite vicious from the outside, knowing nothing about it. But it, it's really interesting hearing you talk about it. And um, as you say, everyone has a different pressure point of what they're going to accept or not accept and what they what their standards are. And you, you just don't know what goes on inside a boardroom. So from the outside, it may look like one thing on the inside and what actually might have happened as we all know, can be very different. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think most people um, approach accepting a board role, you know, that everyone does, you know, their level of due diligence on, you know, the company itself, the the board, the people who are involved, you know, that's a typical sort of thing, um, the financial statements, you know, any sort of environmental risk. Again, everyone has a different sort of level of, of checkpoints to to know as much as they can about a board and a company before they take on a role like that. Um, and I think a general proposition would be that most people, once taking on a board role, would be very reluctant to withdraw other than in a norm, the case of a normal rotation um, unless it was a significant issue for them. So I think... Um, you know, it's not a decision that anyone would make lightly uh, and I think everyone is very conscious of the impact internally for the board, for the company and then externally for, you know, in the case of a listed company, the market or, you know, in every case um, for their personally but also for what it reflects on the remaining, the remaining company and the remaining board. So I think all of those sort of factors are... Um, critical in terms of you know, making a, a decision of that sort of magnitude, uh, and, and I think it is. And we do, you do see it um, clearly. And again, you know, people obviously weigh it up, and uh, and everyone has to ultimately do you know what is right for them. Um, but I think, as I say, those decisions would be made with a great deal of reflection. I think. My show today is an up close and personal with Teresa Dyson. Teresa started out working her life in law. Her path was not necessarily a natural choice for school, but it led to a variety of boards in a variety of areas. I love that. I love that that her skills um, with maths and with English that she mentioned in the very first start, a uh, very first part of the interview show how they can be transferable into learning about all sorts of different industries, be that electricity, health, media, that actually there are her ethics and her, her, her commitment to express and to be a committed part of a board that actually stand her in very good stead. I like the idea of, you know, the decision that boards make you know when a decision is made it is the decision of the board and that that i have to say is exactly what's come across in the abc decision it was the decision of the board but very quickly it turned out that the um the chair of the board had had more influence and perhaps had political um pressure put on them all in this next section we really start talking about well 
you know, that is all very well and good on a very high level and a very senior level. But what happens, you know, to us in a community and on a grassroots level? What about the um, committees that we have in school? Uh, what about the committees that we have in not-for-profits, in organisations, in charities? They're, they're much more part of our life. And, you know, I have to say, I believe that a family needs those different kind of committees. You know, it needs to, to have an approach where you look strategically at w- where your family's going and you look um, about, you know, what, what each member of your family needs to to support them to grow uh, and embrace their skills and their talents and their um, what they're going to offer the world. And in a company, you've got to do the same. But that there's that there's that difference, isn't there? In a not-for-profit, and the tricky thing is that in a not-for-profit, there is a ver- there's a big likelihood that the people who are on the board, the strategic board members, are also key operational members. And that's where it starts to blur because they're two different hats. And if we don't get that they're two different hats, the ego can get involved. Individuality can start um, can start playing a part and it can get very, very messy. So having that clear distinction between board members who are purely there to look strategically um, is really important. What I found out though is that when there is a culture within the organization that is dysfunctional and bullying would be one of them um, then that is the personal responsibility of every person on that board so it's really important that as a board member you understand what your moral obligations are what your financial obligations are uh, what you've actually committed yourself to and so I, I did ask Teresa what, um, what it was like and whether what she learned on her level, you know, could be applicable to community members, uh, perhaps in other not-for-profit organisations. Yeah, sometimes, not always. The scale could be quite different and some of the issues can be quite different and people come with, um, to generally the company as well, to the board, um, with, I suppose, a level of philosophical attachment to whatever the the basis for the not-for-profit is, perhaps more so than you would get in many, not all, sort of companies, of, of, of profit companies. Um, so there, there's certainly, there is definitely a distinct um, uplift in, I suppose, philosophical attachment to to whatever it is the cause that the, the not-for-profit. Um, and that's not to say that there's not very high levels of cultural and philosophical attachment in the for-profit area, but just across the board, I, I make a general observation. But in terms of the governance, um, the boardroom dynamics, the interactions, um, I think there's actually not as much difference as uh, as, as might be perceived outside of of the board sort of community, I suppose. Um, you see a lot of the same people on the not-for-profit boards as on for-profit boards and government boards. Um, the issues around governance, around um, financial accountability, uh, they're all the same. It's not more acute in the not-for-profit sector where you're looking after money 
you know, on behalf of other people or to further causes than, you know, taking people's donations. I mean, there's a high level of financial responsibility that rests with boards of not-for-profit companies and I think there is a bit of a focus these days to increase the knowledge as a general statement uh, in the not-for-profit community um, of a lot of those sorts of areas. Um, it will always be the case that, you know, as I say, people with strong philosophical connection with the subject matter of the company will be attracted to those sorts of roles and there's certainly a place for that. But there's also a need to ensure the same sort of you know, financial hygiene issues, the same sort of um, diligence in, you know, they might not be for profit. Not, they're not, yeah, they might not be looking to distribute a profit, but still need to generate a profit to deliver the objects of the not-for-profit organisation that you're involved with. So, mm. um, you know, it doesn't do anybody any good to, you know, um, <laughs> to over-invest or to overspend or to, to not pay attention to, you know, the financial hygiene of a company just because you're not distributing those profits out to shareholders, I, I would say it's perhaps more the case that you need to be aware of that I'm on the board of three not-for-profits and in all of those cases the um, the need for rigour around finances and governance is just as important and acute as the need to deliver, you know, there's one that's in the art sector, one in the, in the sort of health sector and one in um, the... The UN women sector. <laughs> I don't know what, yeah. what exactly to call that sector, but you know they're they're all delivering um, great stuff across different uh, platforms. But uh, without some of the bedrock of general sort of corporate responsibility, then um, their their impact would be much less. Let's say. What advice and guidance would you give to someone? just starting out and, and, and contemplating what their place might be in the business world? Um, I would say that there's a few things. So firstly, I think take hold of every opportunity that comes your way. I know, you know, you don't want to jump at, at every sort of little thing that, that might fall in front of you, but any sort of real opportunity, I think it's, particularly when you're early in your career or early, um, just give stuff a go. Um, you know, in my case, for example, very early in my career, I was invited to give a speech overseas at a conference and I sort of had to half make my way there. There was all these sort of obstacles to it. but um, And I went over and I really was quite terrible. <laughs> it, was really, um, it was one of the first presentations I'd ever given and, and I think it was obvious. But, um, but it set me up for a willingness to present at different things and you know some of the people that I met at that and again quite random really in the end have been career long supporters of mine um, and you know and, and really lifelong friends so um, you know silly things that you, you sort of don't necessarily expect and necessarily going to take you in a lineal direction I think you should always contemplate them. Um, careers these days are not linear. Uh, mine jumped around a lot and a lot of the advantages that I have now I can really trace back not to a specific career um, promotion or, or something like that but to having taken on 
you know, a, a job in an industry body or, you know, something with the law council or, um, you know, setting up that, that legal clinic I mentioned. You know, there's mm. things that sort of sit on the periphery. You've got to do the core stuff right as well. I'm not saying take your eye off the, the main game. Um, you know, you have to be, you have to commit to and, you know, and commit to yourself to be good at what it is that you're, you're doing on your nine to five, you know, um, mm. And if, you, if you're not enjoying it or you can't commit to it, then there's a clear point to try and make a decision to, to do something else. But I think you can get a lot of benefits from doing things outside of uh, that, that straight sort of line. And they're the things that ultimately, in my view, will give broader sorts of opportunities that you, know, you just may not even have contemplated. And, and certainly that's the case for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that I would say is Doing all of that, uh, don't don't take on too many things. So um, you don't want to you don't want to do you, you don't want to be involved in something and be a passenger. So if you're going to be involved in something, you know, get a little a little piece of it that can be yours, or you know, always do the reading before you turn up to even a not for profit or a you know a school um, committee or you know whatever it is. Make sure that you're prepared. You know, it's um, it really is something that that reflects on you and, and that can build your own sort of esteem in those sorts of environments and all of those sorts of, you know, is it a body corporate at a apartment block or, a, you know, the, the school fate committee or whatever it is, you know, be prepared and, and be committed to delivering something in it and not only does that give you a great feeling about yourself and whatever it is that you're working on but you know you build skills all the time you know dealing with different sorts of people or putting together a budget for you know something you know that, that might be it, it's never trivial that might be sort of on a smaller scale for example a school factor or you know something like that but all of those sorts of things mean that you have to turn your mind to all of the sorts of things that ultimately come up in business and um Again, I think that's the way to get a lot of different sorts of skills and skills that will serve you well going into any sort of career, but certainly a board career. I think um, it's it's not the case that people who've had lineal you know, accounting, pure audit sort of careers are necessarily going to find it easy to transition into boards these days. I think you know you need someone with that sort of level of skill, but they also need to be able to. Um, interact or understand some of the different sorts of nuances of the particular industry that you're in. So um, those sorts of things are only really gained from taking all those extra sorts of opportunities. Teresa, thank you very much for being part of the, the show. Thanks so much. for it, it, I've really enjoyed the conversation and um, it's, it's nice to sometimes just sit and think and reflect on, on some of these you know, yeah. pathways and and, uh, you know, different sorts of things that have, that have happened through careers. Today's show has really covered boards, board structure, but we've done it through the eyes of a woman who called Theresa Dyson, who didn't actually think that her world would start out as a board director or end up as a board director or that she would find herself learning different things about different organizations and different companies through being a board director. But what I think we just got from her interview is a glimpse into the standard that you need to bring in your own life, that you don't need to have all of those 
um, you know, a, a classic career or a skill base as a lawyer or as a financial accountant. But you do need to bring yourself even in community, in a school setting, to a board meeting, which has, or a school council meeting, having read the papers, being prepared to be part of the change that you want to see in that community. And that, I think, came across really clearly. I just also am aware that in community, it can get very personal. We may have personal needs that need to be fulfilled by the contribution we're making to an organisation, be that in a school, um, in our community, in a, in a council. Um, do we need the power, the recognition, the income perhaps, the attention or you know the, the work? We may actually not have enough in our lives and this actually gives us a reason to get out of bed. It, it's so important to look and see the responsibility and the accountability that comes with stepping up and, and saying that you're going to be part of the change that you want to see in an organization. But I, do, I don't really believe that it needs to, it, that it can be your picture and that the control is because the control suffocates. And I'm, I'm involved in a lot of the different organizations that have very different atmospheres within them. And they therefore have def very different voices and very different challenges. Speaking up, though, is, is very important, isn't it? Finding our voice in life. Because when we stay silent, when there's something that's happening that doesn't sit well within our body, and, you know, on this show, we always talk about the body being the marker of your truth. And if you can build that relationship with your body, then when your body is feeling ill at ease, it's going to be telling you something isn't quite right. And, and you need to vocalize that, even if you don't necessarily understand it. So by saying in a group meeting, there's something here that I'm not that doesn't sit well with me. Can we talk about it a little bit further? Can someone else give me, a, you know, another way to look at this this issue? Then we can actually start coming to more um, solid agreements as a cohort, which, you know, hello, I think that's what politics should be, but instead it's become about, you know, my word against your word and what I want and what you want rather than, you know, what's good for the organization or the company that we're looking at right now? What's our long-term strategic view and what do we need to put in place in order to support the people who are actually carrying out the work? Um, how can we create an environment that means that they can do that? I think that when you don't speak up you and you use the, you know, it's got nothing to do with me card, um, you're actually doing the, you're walking past a standard that, you know, you're then saying you accept, your silence is acceptance, really. You know, as a board member, you take equal ownership and that's an enormous responsibility. And I think there are times where you have to say, okay, well, I can see that this board isn't in line with my ethics anymore and therefore I have to step away. But there's a balance, isn't there? We can't abdicate our responsibility, but equally we can't control uh, we want to offer inspiration as opposed to that control so that others take responsibility for the project or the outcome. And, uh, you know, it was, um, I can see a correlation with parenting, you know, a similarity there. We often talk about a company being our baby. And there are certain, certainly very physical and emotional, um, you know, challenges with, with a company and starting out a company. So, 
thanks to Joel Levine from AHA Consultancy, I want to consider, um, you know, putting forward that we consider ourselves as midwives, guardians of a project as opposed to making it about control, which never works in parenting, by the way. But if we make it from inspiration and leadership and, and nurturing, then actually as a midwife, we can birth a project and we can support it to come into the world and we can um, plant seeds that will germinate uh, throughout the company, inspiring people within the company to, to grow into responsible caring and uh, actively uh, engaged adults. Either way, we have to take our responsibility seriously, don't you? We make it about people um, and not place profits over people. I would hazard a guess that um, if your business made it about people first, then your profits would take care of themselves because everybody would be equally engaged. Either way, I thank you for listening today. I I, I can see how, you know, when we talk about... Um, what we're going to have in in the closing of this, we talk so much about the physical um, way our body tells us when something isn't quite right and the importance of speaking up. And that's exactly what we've spoken about today. It's about a community, not just about your body, but the effect of not speaking up when you feel ill at ease with something it's happened is happening has some very physical and psychological consequences. So... If you're in a situation where you're sitting there going, oh, I've got some things to address in my life, don't panic. Uh, it takes time. And just the fact that you're willing to look at something you might have committed to or the way you've engaged in a project or an organization or the way you have led your company or the way you've been a um, an employee in a company. Um, if you're able to look at that and go, gosh, you know what? I think there's more responsibility and accountability I could bring to that project then fantastic. We are and always will be us. We're constantly learning, but we are equally amazing. We're the amazing as we were as a little baby. We are that same essence in our inside now, but it's time to actually help that voice that we knew that was connected to truth as a child. We need to give that permission to speak up. If you need some support, it is in the community. So look for it, open up to that support and learn to trust again. Because, of course, if we wait for life to come to us, we're going to be waiting a long time. We need to take ourselves to life and be the change we want to see in the world. Till next week's show, be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You have been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM and Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Wow.